And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. Well, as far as I am concerned, this is the most important podcast of the year. And so uh, I've decided, rather than make this a combination of podcast and, and video, that uh, to be sure uh, that I focus on helping all of you who are going to be listening to all the numbers, that I do everything I can to help you through that uh, during this presentation. So I am going strictly uh, here by my ability to help you with this information, but of course, my hope is you will have downloaded the tables I'll be referring to, and everything will then be hopeful hopefully crystal clear. So let me tell you why I think this is the most important podcast. Uh, Over the years, there are six topics that I think are most important in the work that we do. Uh, We are not certified financial planners. We don't teach about insurance. We don't teach about taxes. We don't teach about estate planning. We really focus our work on the investment part of the process. And so what we want to make sure you understand is what equity asset classes you should be in, in your portfolio. I don't care if you're 21 or 91. Uh, If you are in equities, of course, with a 21-year-old, I would hope that you were 100% in equities. With a 91-year-old, it might be 20 or 30%. Now, in the case of my wife and myself, and I'm older than she, uh, I am 50% in equities and plan to be there the rest of my life. So, this is about what we could call the gas, This is what is going to drive growth of your portfolio. Bonds, we think of as the break. And so the break is there to slow things down. So I want to make sure that you understand what kind of assets that we recommend. And of course, Elsewhere in our work, we also then tell you how much we want in each one of those. In fact, we'll do some of that here today. Uh, And then later in the next coming weeks here, we'll talk about fine-tuning, how much you'll add to uh, fixed income you'll add if you want to to reduce the uh, exposure to risk. We'll talk uh, next week, we're going to talk about a number of alternative ultimate buy and hold portfolios. We call them the ultimate buy and hold light because these are portfolios built with fewer uh, asset classes, fewer uh, ETFs or mutual funds, simpler to do. And then we'll be talking about accumulation and, and the implications of putting money in slowly over a long period of time with these different strategies, these different combinations of equity asset classes. And finally, we get into the distribution stage. Whether you're going to be fixed or variable, 
uh, how much in fixed income, how much you'll take out. There, there are so many wonderful questions to be answered with those tables. But these are the topics where we feel our work is most valuable. So back to the ultimate buy and hold strategy or portfolio. There is a huge difference between what we are recommending and what you are going to see recommended in other places, other parts of the industry. In fact, uh, likely with the most parts of the uh, buy and hold equity uh, portfolio uh, construction. Because when you go to Vanguard and when you use their model portfolios or you put your money into one of their target date funds, you are going to have a portfolio of equities that is based on the concept of cap weighting. In other words, building a portfolio that is based on the amount in each of those companies driven by the size of those companies so that when you own the S&P 500 or the total market index, it's a relatively small number of companies that are going to drive the price up or drive the price down. And the smallest companies inside of that portfolio are going to have very, very little impact on the final outcome. So, driven by the giants, in essence. On the other, and I should mention, that could be the giants within small cap, it could be the giants within mid cap, or it could be the giants within large cap. Now, the other approach to building a portfolio, or I should say another approach, uh, is to build it based on a, a distribution across different asset classes. Uh, as you know, we would like you to have some uh, large cap blend, which blend means a combination of growth and value. But we also want you to have other asset classes that are specific size, or orientation to growth and value. We'll talk about these in just a few minutes, but the bottom line is when the portfolio is done, it means that the impact of those huge handful of companies are going to have some but not a huge, massive impact on the final number. It may be that small cap will have the same impact as large, that growth and value will be about the same. It could even go to U.S. versus international, could be about the same. So it's a very different way to construct a portfolio. And it is the academics who believe, and I agree with them, that based on history, this should lead to a better unit of return per unit of risk. Because it's not just about what return you get. It's about how much risk you took to get it. And we would love to help you find a way to get a better return. Remember, 
we believe that a, I'll call it a modest investment of $5,000 a year over 40 years, achieving an extra half of 1%, including after the 40 years using that money to fund your retirement, and then eventually after you die to fund uh, those people who have a right to those asset classes after your passing. And the point is an extra half of 1% could mean that you could make an extra million to a million and a half dollars. And if we could help you find two of those half of 1% or three or even four, then that would mean potentially three, four, five million dollars more in earnings. But we want to try to do this without exposing you to very much more risk. It may be a little bit more risk, but not much. Now, next week, I'll talk about strategies that are not trying to, to, to create the same, re- the same uh, uh, risk as the S&P 500, but we're going to talk about portfolios that are more, decidedly more risky than the S&P 500 and what that might mean to your financial future. But today, this is not about taking more risk in order to get a better return. It's finding a way to get the better return without taking more risk. We'll see. So, that really is an important aspect of this, that this is not cap-weighted, but asset class-weighted. And another one of the driving aspects of the, of the strategy is that we are looking for asset classes that have a history of doing better than the total market index, better than the S&P 500. And because they don't go up and down at the same time with the S&P 500 or, or the total market index, you can actually add some more theoretical volatility that does not increase the overall volatility. Or if it, do, if it does, it's a, small, it's a very small amount. And another important aspect of the study I'm about to show you is that it is, it is the outcome of what we call a lump sum investment. One time, one $100,000 investment in 1970. And then we track the impact of the annual returns from uh, either the S&P 500 or the S&P 500 plus these other asset classes. And the reason this is important is because when you have a lump sum investment and you don't add any money to it and you don't take any money out, the return is exactly the same regardless of what the sequence of returns might be. This is extremely important. So with a lump sum investment, the first three years may be just terrible, but you don't have to face those three terrible years later on in this 51-year period. 
because whether those three terrible years come right at the beginning or right at the end, as long as you're not adding or taking money out, the end result is going to be exactly the same. And I think the reason this is important is because this is not the way investors invest. And we'll be talking about dollar cost averaging in. You see, when you're dollar cost averaging in, you start with zero. There is no lump sum. There is the first month's contribution, the second month's contribution, and you build the portfolio over a very long period of time. That is the way that it normally operates. Or at the other end of the spectrum, the person who gets to retirement and wants to start taking the money out. And now, all of a sudden, the sequence of returns makes a big difference. And we'll be talking about that in another podcast. Now, there's something very important about these results. And if all you did was look at the outcome at the end of the 51-year period, uh, you might not have a clue that we made a change in the underlying returns, because the changes that we made actually did not have much impact, particularly on a lump sum investment uh, over this 51-year period. And here's the change. We had built these tables based on the returns of dimensional fund advisors' indexes that they have built over many, many decades. In fact, they've taken the work all the way back to 1926 in many of these major uh, equity asset classes. But there were some asset classes we couldn't go back with their work, their research, before the time that that particular asset class was available. So, you had to use their emerging markets that started in 1988, but we didn't. We started in 1970, which means we really couldn't show the impact of emerging markets on the portfolio uh, in those earlier years. Same thing with the international small cap value, and and some other uh, REITs is that's another one that we didn't have the full uh, 51 year period, but. Chris Pedersen uh, decided to go out and, and, and find returns for those other periods. And he was able to find sufficient returns that allowed him to, to estimate the returns uh, during those particular years. Now, the challenge is, anytime you're estimating what you're saying is it's not perfect. It doesn't represent exactly what we're after. And the reason that I'm not as sensitive as you might be is because the indexes themselves, the way they were built, are not perfect. They're, they're not real. The S&P 500 didn't even come into existence until 1976. So how can they go back to 1926? Because they have estimated what that, that, that particular portfolio would have returned. So if you don't trust the work that Chris Pedersen has done, then we might say we don't trust 
might choose to not trust all of that previous work with other indexes where they had to do their best to replicate what had happened. So I am comfortable, and Chris will, in his new book uh, that will be out uh, maybe six months or so, uh, on the two funds for life, and I'm reading the rough draft of right now, and it is it is a wonderful, wonderful uh, a book that people who are interested in the two funds for life, I think you're going to be thrilled with all the research that, uh, that Chris has put into this book. But he will explain exactly uh, what he did uh, in order to recreate this, re- this information looking backwards. The first thing I can tell you is that in a lump sum situation, it turned out that the difference in return is very, very small over the 51 years. So let's look at the very first equity asset class. By the way, in the notes to this presentation is a link to the tables I'm using. So if you want to uh, take the time to, to, to print those out or to access them on your computer, uh, you can do that while I'm walking through them. But if you're not doing that, I'll do my best to make the description uh, adequate for you to get the idea. Now, the first thing I thought was an interesting lesson here is how did the underlying benchmark investment do last year, and what impact did that have to on the entire 51-year period? Well, as you may or may not recall, last year it was noted that for the 50-year period ending in 2019, the S&P 500 compounded at 10.6%. But in 2020, the S&P 500 was up about 18%. So what impact did that have in terms of the compound rate of return over the 51-year period? Well, it went from about 10.6 to about 10.7. And that impact, if you want to look at it in terms of compounding, meant that the original $100,000 investment grew to be worth almost $18 million, $17,939,015. So that, by the way, was quite an improvement from last year. That's up about $2.5 million in one year because the year ended last year at about million. And what do we know about the S&P 500 versus all the rest of these equity asset classes? The S&P 500 was the star. And, and, And so what happened was this. If all you owned was the S&P 500 last year, you had a great year, up $2.5 million. If you owned all 10 of the equity asset classes, you were only up 
million. So all the fooling around, all the rebalancing, all the work that you do to maintain this portfolio uh, did not help. It hindered because you can't beat in any year the number one performer. And we know from looking backwards in the four fund strategy that that the the S&P 500 is often the number one performer. So, so uh, what happens when you start taking pieces of the S&P 500 away and giving it to other equity asset classes? What happens to the return? What happens to the risk? And what happens to the total outcome? And in the case of taking step number one and taking 10% out of the S&P 500, putting that into large cap U.S. value, the return increased by about two-tenths of 1%. And the amount of money in the portfolio went up by about $1.5 million. Now, you may remember from years past that as you add little pieces of each of these other asset classes, that in every case in the past, it has been helpful to the total return. But remember, like I just pointed out, that it, it helps in the long term, but not necessarily in the short term. We'll see that here again in a second. Then we dip in again. We dip in. We take out 10% from the S&P 500. We put it into small cap blend. Now, small cap blend is a combination of smaller companies, much smaller companies, some value, some growth. That's the blend, value and growth. That previous large cap value was focused on just large cap value. So what was the impact of adding a 10% position in small cap blend, an increase of about one-tenth of 1%. So now you go from adding 1.5 million to a total of about 2.8 million to your original 17.9 million. But what about risk? What's happened to risk? What's happened to the volatility? Well, the volatility is 16.9% standard deviation, the same as the standard deviation of the S&P 500. So theoretically, you could say that by adding 20%, 10% in each small cap blend and large cap value, you have increased the return by a substantial amount. If you don't care, your heirs will appreciate the extra money, but you did it without impacting the volatility. And I could just give you one example. If you looked at 1977, the S&P 500 was down about, I think, 7%. If you looked at the combination of all the different asset classes, it was up around 21%. So 
they don't go up and down together, so it kept the volatility in check. But now we're going to add another, and this time an even more aggressive asset class, more volatile, and that's U.S. small cap value. And that increased the return, and this time it's a big item because we know the the small cap value is the, the gold ring of all of these asset classes historically. But the compound rate of return went up four-tenths of one percent. And it added ever so little to the risk. The the standard deviation goes from 16.9 to 17. For all practical purposes, that's basically the same. And the bottom line, the value of the portfolio, if you stopped right there, goes from the original 17.9 to about 24.4 million. That's a big deal. That's about 6.5 million more. Now, the next edition hardly moves the needle in terms of return. I'm sure you won't be up unhappy with the fact that by adding U.S. REITs, you increased the return enough that the portfolio was went from 24.4 million to 24.9 million approximately. So it increased by a little over 500,000. Not meaningless, but not a game changer. And um, and so that took the portfolio up to 7 million, but the standard deviation because the REITs go up and down very often at a different time by a different amount than the S&P 500 and these other asset classes, and the standard deviation went down from 16.9 to 16.7. Well, the next thing that happened was we added internationals. And as you may remember, we don't take you painfully through all the 10% increments. We do dump all at one time four international equity asset classes, including large cap blend, large cap value, small cap blend, small cap value, all international. Not Now, by the way, international is different from global. Global means it includes the United States. International is everything outside the United States. The impact was to increase, remember, these are four now, increase the return from 11.4 to 12%, and the standard deviation jumps to 17.8. So about a full percentage point more than the original 16.9. That is still, again, for all practical purposes, the same. And so the value of that $100,000 portfolio jumps by about $7.5 million because you added those international securities. And then finally, finally, 
the most volatile of all, actually, is emerging markets. And uh, that increases the return by another four-tenths of one percent. By the way, these, these portfolios are rebalanced once a year. That has a huge impact, the, the emerging markets, because they can be very sky-high or, or at the bottom of the bunch. They are very volatile compared to the other nine equity asset classes. And the standard deviation at 18.5 is about one and a half times more than the S&P 500. That is not a meaningful difference statistically. And the total outcome of the 10 asset classes over 51 years is 38.4 million. And that is up from the end of last year of 37.1 million. So not a terrible year. Not a great year. The great year was to to get what the S&P 500 got. Now that's balanced on an annual basis. And 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 I and I want to give you uh well before I give you let me just tell you a couple more things. No taxes have been taken out. What has been taken out is a fee for expenses to manage these indexes. Now, these indexes were not all around going back that far. So what we had to do was to go apply those the, the indexes expenses that you would pay today to those where we didn't have the real uh, index expenses. And so if you were to absolutely recreate the history of these asset classes, you wouldn't have real taxes. Well, in fact, you wouldn't have any taxes. And you would have had higher expenses than are reflected here back in the early days because mutual funds had much, much higher expenses. But this is the way it would look with today's variables applied. Now, let's talk about making the change here and hopefully giving you another really valuable lesson. And that is that if you rebalanced monthly, you would be taking from the very best asset classes and giving to the worst performing asset classes month after month after month. So it makes it harder for the, the, more, the more productive asset classes to, to, to get ahead because they, every time they do something good, they're penalized and part of that money goes over to the less productive. So what was the end result of this over this 51-year period? The result in terms of return and the result in terms of of the standard deviation. So as we look at portfolio seven, that's the one that has them all, what we see is that we go from 12.4 or $38.4 million in the account down to 
20, I'm sorry, 12.1 or about 34.4 million. So you left about 4 million on the table because you wanted to be very true to your risk tolerance, but you also uh, you left some money on the table, but you reduced the volatility by about 1%, a little over 1%. Again, a meaningless amount. So if I were in your situation, I can't give you personal advice, as you know, but I would think, one, for the trouble and maybe the cost of rebalancing, you're better off to do it annually than you are on a monthly basis. I know some people actually advocate monthly rebalancing inside of 401k plans. And I'm not going to address it today, but I can tell you we will address it before the year is up. What if you waited a year and a half? What if you waited two years? What if you waited three years? What would it look like? And uh, we'll, we'll show you as best we can what that would be. Now, let me make sure that I've covered all the lessons that I want to on this page. Yep, I think I got them all. Now, now we go to one more page of information. And the difference will be this. We know our hero, John Bogle, uh, was not in favor of internationals. And over the years... Uh, he compromised and said, okay, if you must, 10, maybe even 20% would be okay. But he felt you had all the quality that you needed in the S&P 500. He was not even in terms of recommending to you, even at the same time as he was in the same position that I am now, he's not an investment advisor. He wasn't an investment advisor. He was just somebody who was giving you his best ideas in a generic way. So his generic advice would not have had very much in internationals. And yet there are a lot of people, uh, smart people, who say you should have some. So let's say you're torn. <laughs> you're torn between John Bogle and Dr. Fahman, Dr. French, uh, people who, who John Bogle really uh, felt highly about. He, he really uh, had confidence that their work was legitimate. So let's let it be legitimate, but let's also uh, give a nod to John Bogle and say, okay, how about 30%? Let's, let's have 30%. What happens? So when I look at table 1B, that first table I looked at was 1A, what are the implications now of having 70% in the U.S. portion and 30% in international instead of 50-50? Well, the areas that we would expect to be impacted potentially would be in the return. That's going to be different. I don't know how much different. Could be more, could be less. And it would also have an impact on the volatility. There are some people who would guess that the international asset classes, because of currency diversification and because 
their stocks don't necessarily go up and down with the U.S., that there might be some improvement in the volatility. Meaningful? Well, we'll find out. So when I look at the 70-30 with the internationals and U.S., and I compare it to the 50-50, and I go to Portfolio 7. That's where uh, we're, we're, we're going to see the final result. Before, with Portfolio 50-50, Table 1A, the final amount was $38.4 million. The final amount in the 1B table uh, was 36.9. In fact, rounding, it was really the 37 million. So about a about a million and a half lower return. The compound rate of return for the 50/50 was about one tenth of one percent higher. Now I think it's important to note, and this is not a prediction, but the U.S. market for many years has been on a terror. Prior to that, the international markets had been on a terror and had done better. So it might only take one year of the the returns going the other direction uh, to have the international component uh, bring the return back up to being the same or better than the 50-50. And when we look at the, um, the monthly rebalancing, it turned out they were both 12.1, but there was about $400,000 more in the 50-50 strategy. So almost the same, $34 million versus $34.4 million approximately. So the same equities, the same internationals, but just a different proportion. And so whatever you might do, you might go in and you might decide, you know what I want to do? I know that small cap value made more than, than the S&P 500, more than large cap value, and more than small cap blend. I'm going to make it 20%, and I'm going to take 5% out of the small cap blend, and I'm going to take 5% out of the small cap international blend. You, you, could, you could fool with it, and guess what? The returns would change. And next week, when I talk about not just trying to get the best unit of return per unit of risk, but deciding to to up the ante in terms of risk, you'll see ways that you could dip into these asset classes and and make a sizable difference in the return. Then you've got to figure out if you're willing to take the risk. I also think it's important to discuss the likelihood of this kind of return happening. Of course, we have no idea what the future will bring. The academics will tell us they believe that small cap will outperform large. They believe that value will outproduce growth for the long term. They also believe that stocks will outproduce bonds. They they believe that Long-term bonds will outproduce T-bills. 
that are very short term. So there are a lot of assumptions, but let me talk about some additional assumptions. Uh, we have talked for years about dimensional funds and the way they build portfolios. It was my hope way back when, uh, before we were into the ETF markets, that we would come as close as we could using the, the Vanguard funds to DFA. Uh, and, and, and now what we believe using the ETFs that are available through Vanguard, and remember we have a Vanguard portfolio of ETFs, Vanguard only, but we also have a best-in-class group of ETFs that are more likely to perform as the DFA asset class funds have performed over long periods of time. But you're going to be stuck. When I say stuck, you're going to be in a 401k plan where you're doing the majority of your saving. And inside of that 401k plan, you're, you're not going to have a small cap value. You might have an extended market index. You're not going to have an international small cap blend, more than likely, or small cap value. Oftentimes, there's an emerging market, which is more risky in, in terms of volatility than an international small cap blend. But emerging markets are a very different asset class than large cap blend international. So it gets stuck in a lot of 401ks. I have what I consider to be really great news. Um, working uh, on a project, when I say working, I don't mean they've hired me. I'm talking with a person that's involved in a project where they have been able to convince the university to add the asset classes that would allow people to build a portfolio with as many of these these asset classes as possible. It's coming. It's slow. It's just like like not every not every four hundred one k plan has index funds. What? How can that be? And these are big companies. That even makes it worse. So uh, the ultimate buy and hold. That's all about the gas pedal. That's all about helping you pick the best equity asset classes. Let us remember that in most 401ks, the equity asset classes you are getting, like at Vanguard, are the S&P 500, that would be large cap blend, and large cap international blend. So you get two funds have very little value, very little small cap, very little mid cap, and uh, and are not likely to come close to what adding some small cap value would do for that portfolio. So you build it as you can find it. Maybe you build it inside of an IRA. Maybe what you do is you invest in your 401k until you get to the match 
using all the match, and then you move into a Roth IRA. Now, that would depend on your tax situation. But typically for a young investor in their 20s, that would be a smart thing to do. All right, there we go. Week number one of six or seven about the best work that we do. And um, next week I'll be talking about comparing the ultimate buy and hold that we just talked about with many buy-and-hold light strategies. We'll compare the risk. We'll compare the return. And for you young folks, I am just sure that you're going to find one of those small those small uh, portfolios, those ultimate buy-and-hold light portfolios, will be more to your liking. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all that you do to spread the word of the work that we're doing. I hope some of you were at the Retire Meet uh, conference that I spoke at uh, last Saturday. I think that is going to be archived. I hope it's going to be archived, and you can go uh, listen to the whole thing. I spoke for a half an hour, and, uh, and some other really talented folks, experienced people, spoke about things even other than uh, investing itself. There you go. Keep, keep coming back. Keep liking. Keep passing along to others. Keep, when you can, leave a comment here and there about the value of these podcasts and keep learning. Wish you well. Thanks. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.